the Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, folks. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom, how are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. program. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Good tidings to you wherever you Good tidings for Christmas and a happy new year. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a happy new year. We wish you a Merry Christmas from the Tom Sumner Show. 
Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is Professor of Philosophy and um, Honors, uh, Distinguished Faculty at uh, DePaul University in Chicago. He ha- He's the author of five books, um, but his latest book, and we're going to talk about that a little bit, is uh, called What Do White Americans Owe Black People? Racial Justice in the Age of Post-Oppression. The author's name is Jason D. Hill. He joins me by phone from vacation in Jamaica, of all places. (laughs) Anyway, Jason, good morning and welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I didn't realize I was going to be talking to you from Jamaica. See, I feel bad now because... Um, you know, you would have uh, you would have been calling from Chicago if you were at home, and we share some of the same weather patterns. But I I expect it's much nicer where you are. Oh, it's eighty five degrees and sunny and wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, stop it! You're like those people from Florida that call us, you know, in <laughs> January and February to tell us how warm it is. Um, but let's talk about this book. Um. The title, uh, What Do White Americans Owe Black People? Are you really are you really asking that question and and what kind of an answer would you expect? Well, I really wrote the book, Tom, because I think that the aggrievement industry is alive and well. And when I say that I mean the reparations movement is making its way throughout this country. Increasingly so. We see over and over again movements in Congress in California um, that somehow, um, because of slavery, uh, there are residual effects that afflict black people and that the asymmetry uh, between the races or any kind of disparities between the races are causally due to slavery and that white people or black people, a lot of things, including reparations. And so I, I raised this question in the book with the idea of asking quite seriously because reparations are a serious question in this country. And I painstakingly go through this book and show that reparations have been made, beginning surprisingly with the 1776 founding and the Declaration of Independence of this country, though the basic foundations for the freedom of black people are founded in the inception of this country. And then with the Civil War, of course, which was fought to free the slaves. And then the third great founding, third great founding of this country, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which brought blacks full equality before the law and brought them within the pantheon of the ethical and the, the, the subsequent affirmative action programs, the 1972 Employment Act, that in a constitutional republic such as ours, there's nothing more that the country can do for us, for blacks, in terms of reparations. I also wanted to show that there is this idea through critical race theory and through cancel culture that um, there is a lot of that is taking place between the racedness, and I wanted to trace the roots, the philosophical, intellectual roots, if you want to call them, of where all of this is coming from, the reparations, the critical race theory, 
cancel culture, and what we could call woke supremacy. I tie them all into this book in one package and show that they all boil down to one single question, that whites in America, all blacks, something. And so this is, this is a follow-up to my subsequent book that I wrote, which is called We Have Overcome an Immigrant's Letter to the American People, which was a love letter to the American people to fight the kind of Americophobia this book shows one manifestation of the Americophobia, which is the agreement industry making certain claims on certain, a certain group of Americans that they owe another group something very, very tangible because of something, an institution, which this country inherited from the British a very, very long time ago. Jason, this uh, the book, the, the title is What Do White Americans Owe Black People? Racial Justice in the Age of Post-Oppression. That would seem almost incendiary to some people that are raising concerns about systemic racism and um, the, the frequency of shootings of young black men by police officers. Well, if you look at the statistics, um, Tom, you will see that um, there are actually more unarmed white men that are shot by police officers every year. Uh, the, the liberal media, of course, does not report this. Um, uh, one of the unfortunate facts in our society today is that blacks constitute 13% about th nearing 13% of the population, about 12%, but they constitute over 40% of the crimes committed um, um, in this country, which includes murders, homicides, rapes, carjackings, and so on and so forth. So you're going to have, in many, many cases, a disproportionate number of arrests and, unfortunately, um, um, confrontations between police officers when a disproportionate number of crimes are committed given the small percentage of the population, in comparatively speaking. Um, but Jason, I agree with you that, that media uh, does shine a bigger spotlight on uh, police-involved shootings of, of black people, but the statistic that you just shared about committing 40% of the crime. Um, there's another st statistic involving prison population that is, is used often to show that black people are incarcerated more. They're more likely to be uh, uh, the ones committing crimes. But it doesn't include the part where they're most apt in uh, urban settings to be disenfranchised and and um, underrepresented and 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 certainly um, low on the on the economic scale, they're they're not as gainfully employed, and when they are, they don't make as much money. And and aren't those things? I mean, don't you think those things factor into this equation somewhere? I think those are those are problems, uh, Tom. I don't think that they are due to systemic racism. I think that they are due to a host of phenomena. 
Um, I think they are due to um, the fact that our public educational system, which is based primarily on property taxes, um, are used to finance the education of all persons. And if I can type your zip code in and tell you the kind of education you're receiving, um, then that's a bad thing since most, since not most, since many blacks live in urban centers that are poor, and therefore the property taxes financing that education would be much less than those financing the educational uh, education of, of, of wealthier whites. This is an argument for, I would say, either abolishing the income tax or abolishing the income on which blacks could use that portion of their income to send their children to private schools, tax vouchers for education, charter schools. Um, there are all sorts of options that could alleviate or mitigate these problems. Um, the other phenomenon that I want to talk about is that there are certain pathologies within the black community which have not been addressed. That is, 72% of children born into African-American uh, families are born out of wedlock. Now, of that 72%, a significant portion, I believe, is about 70% is correlative to poverty. Now, that's not due to systemic racism. It's not whites who are going into black communities and impregnating white black women. Um, so when you have 74% of black children born to single mothers, um, you've got a situation where fathers are disincentivized from supporting their children because they're being taken care of by the state. And this has happened since the 1960s with Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty in the Great Society program, which I talk about in length at my book, that blacks were, even on a Jim Crow, had self-sustaining communities, good schools, literacy rates were high, the out-of-birth wedlock was something like 22%, and along came the Great Society program in which black communities that had been self-sustaining were decimated because um, the state became the surrogate husband of these black women. So a lot of these problems that you're talking about are true, but they're not due to systemic racism. I think they're residual effects of Paradoxically, the welfare programs that were instituted in the 1960s, the late 1960s, the latter part of the civil rights movement. Um, and the way to fix these problems really is to, uh, aside from what I just said, is also to tax businesses less, incentivize businesses to open up mentorship programs. I myself work with one such organization where we try to get corporations and small businesses to provide mentorship to uh, black youth um, to train them in, um, you know, the various skills that one needs for entrepreneurship, everything from interviewing skills. Um, but you can't have a situation like this when businesses are taxed heavily and they're not incentivized to engage in these kinds of these kinds of programs. But the main point that I want to make, Tom, is that <clears throat> the problems that you spoke of are very, very real. I'm just not convinced that they're due to the systemic well, racism. More with DePaul University philosophy professor Jason Hill straight ahead. Everybody's doing 
it on a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed. 
a magical place with magical charms indoors 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 take it away And the Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More with DePaul University philosophy professor Jason Hill straight ahead. Let me let me try and put your position in context a little bit for the listeners, Jason. You're from Jamaica originally. That's right. Are you? Would you consider yourself a person of color? Oh yes, yes. You are dark skinned. Well, I'm I'm light skinned, but I I'm of mixed ancestry. But I'm, I consider myself black. Yes. Okay. What I'm what I'm getting at is there are a lot of black Americans or African Americans, however you want to describe it, who um, believe themselves to be descendants of slaves and that um, somehow they've never really had an opportunity to enjoy all of the freedoms that the U.S. has to offer. Um, How is your perspective different from theirs coming here from Jamaica? Because you've referred to the U.S. as the best country to start a new life in for any designated uh, uh, geographic designation or um, demographic designation. Well, I think there are two issues here. One is I came to America when I was 20. I came here with my my, my, my family. Um, I came here with $120 in my pocket. Um, and my mother came, my grandmother came, and my brother came. Um, I had to work four jobs to put myself through school. Uh, I worked up to 45 hours a week to finance my undergraduate education until I won a scholarship, a full scholarship to do my Ph.D. in philosophy. Um, when I came to America, I lived in Atlanta. This was in 1985 in the Deep South. And I think what guides a lot of immigrants is a perspective, a philosophy. I didn't see intrinsic bigotry. I didn't see intrinsic racism. What I saw was a country that was filled with a plethora of opportunities. I saw a country in which blacks were no longer oppressed. That is, there were no longer any punitive laws on the books that punished blacks because they were blacks. I came to a country in which white supremacy was no longer the case. That is, there was no ruling ideology that pr- that promoted the white race as a superior race. And I lived in the Deep South in the 1980s in Atlanta and went to school in Carrollton, Georgia. So I would say that I can understand why a lot of black Americans who have been persecuted, who did live under persecution, under Jim Crow, would have a sort of psychological ethos that would 
makes them in some sense conditioned to see America as a country not filled with opportunities. And given the victimology, the victim mentality, and the aggrievement industry that is alive and well, that rewards this kind of mentality, it is all too easy to fall um, under that kind of belief system. However, I must say that if you look at Africans, if you look, look at Caribbeans, if you look at other people of color who have come here and who have taken advantage of this, these opportunities, if this country really were systemically racist and pitted against the interests of black people, then persons such as myself and other immigrants that I talk about in my previous book would not have made it. We would have remained, our aspirational identities would have been killed. We would not have been able to make something remarkable of my life, of, of our lives. And so it's really a sort of mythology. Uh, America has changed. I have seen race relations change. America has progressed. America has become a much better country. What I would like to do in my work is to show people of color that this, this aggrievement industry that is out to function as a sort of managerial class to keep them under uh, a certain yoke, a certain um, tutelage, if you will, is is a false narrative that they're buying into, that America is a country filled with opportunities. And, and yet, that Jason, one has to have. I, I, I can't help wondering, um, you know, I, I agree that there have been a lot of strides made and a lot of improvements made, and the laws on the books read very differently than they did 50 years ago. But, Yet it seems to me that racism is certainly alive and well. The idea of white supremacy is still alive and well. I would argue that there was an underpinning of white supremacy in the uh, uh, January 6th uh, uh, Capitol insurrection at the beginning of this year. Um, how do we address those issues if the laws didn't, do it. I, you know, when Barack Obama got inaugurated president, I thought, oh, this is amazing. We've, you know, elected and inaugurated a black president. Maybe race relations will get better, but they seem to get worse. How do we, you know, we've, if we've addressed all of the legal issues, how do we deal with the relations between races? Well, I, 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 Tom, here, I think that the actual relation between races, and I travel around the country a lot, a tremendous amount of traveling, giving talks and lectures, um, and meeting average Americans, that the actual relations between the races are not as divisive as people would have, have us believe, that they're with full forethought of malice. There are no, the average white American is not out to destroy the life and the aspirations of black people. This is not. This is. This is. So you would agree. You would agree, Jason, with with people, white people in particular, who say, "I'm not racist," um, as opposed to the people who say, "Not being racist isn't good enough. You have to be anti-racist." 
Well, Tom, I think that there is racism. I think that there are people who still look at black people and think that they're cognitively, biologically inferior. And, and short of a blow to totalitarian state, that's a form of psychosis. There will always be stupid people. And racism is a form of stupidity because it's a form of misperceiving reality. That is, you look at a person who has a certain morphology and skin complexion and you make certain judgments about that person. That cannot be eradicated because you cannot eradicate people's beliefs. However, I don't think that most Americans, even if they hold those beliefs, try to manifest policies in this world. And I don't think most Americans hold those, those beliefs, by the way. But I think the, the, the minority of Americans who hold those beliefs still don't try to enact policies through Congress, through the Senate, to sabotage the lives of people of color. Uh, those days are over. We're beyond that tale of racism. So yes, racism does exist. There's, I, I walk out into the world in America, and I'm sure that there are people who are white who look at me and immediately form certain judgments about who I am, about how I comport myself, about where I belong in this world. To, to go back to January 6th, I think, yes, that was a form of, 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 one could say that was a form of white supremacy on display. But let me even out the, the, the equation here. We also have the rise of black supremacists in this country in the form of Black Lives Matter um, and Antifa and a, sub, a, sub, a significant number of whose members happen to be black. Um, so what we have is a growing kind of tribalism in this country uh, that, is, that is ripping this country apart. I don't think that the white supremacists um, in this country pose a significant threat to the flourishing and the well-being of, um, of the average black American for the simple fact that they are regarded as fringe groups. Most people look at these people and think that they are deserving of punishment if they inflict harm on, on people. Most people were aghast at it's just a small minority of hardcore Republicans who defend the January 6th in, attempted insurrection. Most people are horrified at what happened and think that these people should be punished or held accountable in some way. So the Proud Boys and the Ku Klux Klan members, uh, all of whose memberships are in decline, in decline right now, I don't think pose a significant threat to the lives of black people in the way that the Klan certainly did in the 1930s, the 40s, and up onto the 50s and even the 60s. Um, but we are seeing the rise of a kind of tribalism, I will agree, a kind of factionism. That, and I, I talk about this in the fourth chapter of my book, that would seek to pit deliberately the races against each other. I have more faith in my fellow Americans that we are a nation of individualists and that we can rise above this, that we can look at each other as Americans and that we have a common core identity as Americans, that despite our differences in political affiliations, in religious affiliations... And yet it seems can, like we can, we're, we're stuck in two opposing ruts. We are, right. now. it seems that way. But um, I, I have to be optimistic because I'm an educator, I'm a professor in the classroom, and each semester I get a, a new set of students, and I have to do my job of educating them, 
of imparting not just knowledge but virtues and 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 character building and i I think that against the backdrop of human civilizations I, I study world civilizations just as a hobby um, this is not unusual for any civilization when you look at the tumultuous sixties um one couldn't I was a child then I was born in sixty five but having read enormously for my research about the sixties um and those old enough those of your listeners old enough to have lived through the sixties I mean one could not have pointed to a more divisive time and a more polarized time in American history when it did seem as if we might have had a race war when it did seem as if um the differences seemed irreconcilable between blacks and whites, and yet we got through it. Um, blacks were granted their full civil rights. We had a moment where um, not only were blacks granted civil rights, but blacks were, through affirmative action programs, mainstreamed into American society. There were a lot of whites who were resentful and didn't like it, but we moved ahead and we moved forward and we did the right thing because we brought into the into history and into the human community people who were held back. So I'm I'm not I cannot say that I'm too overly pessimistic about this divisive moment. Um, this seems to be something that all civilizations and I do think America is a civilization. All civilizations and all cultures seem to go through at at very um, at various moments in their development. Jason, what kind of feedback or or dare I say pushback have you gotten for some of your views in in writing? Well, I have been canceled, Tom, so many times that it's really really difficult to say. Um, I have been um, censured by my university and by my faculty and formally rebuked for being pro-Israel and, um, and, and advance, advancing the view that Netanyahu, then Prime Minister Netanyahu, had the right to a next student scenario. Um, I have been canceled for stating that biological men who identify as women should not be competing in sports with biological women that is women who have the chromosomal markers of XX. Um, so I get a lot of pushback for my views. Um, I've been canceled many, many times and rebuked and repudiated. But I, I continue because I, I think the truth, or one, what, one sense of the truth to the best of one's ability, uh, is what matters. And that is what keeps me going forward. Um, I'm not one to be derailed quite easily because I do. <laughs> I am a philosopher. I am a philosopher, and I do spend years thinking and researching and observing anything before I commit it to paper. And I and I am a great patriot of this country. I must say, you know, I love America tremendously, and I believe in the can-do spirit of Americans to to improve our republic, and it's. Americans are fixers, they're problem solvers. So I, one of the reasons I don't think that we're going to stay in this kind of divisive rut is that it's ultimately counterproductive and um, Americans by nature are not individuals to stay in a state of indecisive counterproductiveness. So uh, 
it'll be a long haul, but I do feel that eventually we'll pull through it. Have you been able to, in conversations and, and debates, sway people who feel differently to your way of thinking? Well, I have, and I, and I do it not through... I do it by taking people's claims very seriously. And that's why I said I, I don't just poo-poo on the reparations argument. I take it very seriously. I take the people... I take, I take my adversaries, or those who hold different viewpoints for myself, very, very seriously. I don't um, demonize people. I criticize ideas. And so when you, I approach people with compassion and with a deep sense of understanding of where, they, where I think they're coming from, and I show my side of the story, I, I have been able to sway people. And one of the ways in which I've been able to sway quite a few African-Americans about the reparations argument is that I say, look, it's very eviscerative of your dignity. It makes you like a, a mendicant, like a beggar. It makes you uh, seem like you cannot use your creative agency uh, to solve the problems that you're afflicted with on a day-to-day basis. That even when you encounter racism, it's far better to offer, and I end the book on this note, that those whom you think might have injured you and those who actually did injure you Far better to offer compassion and forgiveness than to demand something like reparations from those who will include a significant number of people who have not harmed you. My so guess. When, when, go ahead, Jason. So when people realize that they that their dignity is at stake and that their pride is at stake, their pride in the good sense of the term. I have been able to reach such people that you must stand tall, you must you must be proud, and you must be dignified, and that seeking reparations, for example, or seeking any kind of a or or, or adhering to the, to the aggrievement industry, the entitlement industry, is not conducive to dignity. I think people see in reason and seeing themselves that they're falling short of their own personal values and principles that they hold. My guest is philosophy professor Jason Hill from DePaul University in Chicago. The book is called What Do White Americans Owe Black People? Racial Justice in the Age of Post-Oppression. Jason, we're just about out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about, more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Um, do you have a website, Jason? I do have a website. It's called uh, W Double. It's my full name, Jason Damian, D-A-M-I-A-N-H-I-L-L, Hill, jasondamianhill.com. Uh, so it's jasondamianhill.com. They can also find me on Twitter at jasondhill6. And all my, my book is on Amazon, um, selling, I think, quite well. Um, I'd love for listeners to buy it. History Boss will get a great kick out of it because I go all the way back to even showing the debates between our great late President Abram Lincoln and Justice Taney about the rights of slaves. I talk about the morality of the Founding Fathers. There's a lot on Jefferson and Madison, 
um, on George Washington. I talk about the philosopher, the founding fathers, and even though they owned slaves, the ambivalence that they felt about some of them owning slaves. And um, so there's a lot of history in there for history buffs, and there's a lot of contemporary stuff about um, the roots of the divisiveness that is threatening to tear not just blacks and whites apart, but our, our, our wonderful, great republic. Uh, and they can get the book on Amazon. Well, Jason, thank you so much for spending this time and, and sharing your thoughts with me and the listeners this morning. Um, best of luck. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Take care. And with that, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Bells will be ringing the sad news Oh, the Christmas to have the blues My baby's gone I have no friends to wish me greetings Once again Please come on for Christmas If not for Christmas By New Year's night Friends and relations Send salutations
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana. What are you doing? Oh, you know, just, um, attorney general stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen... We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. 
Safina, Tamaya, Sammy, Lauren, Maya, Raya, Riley, Ella, Gabby, Emma, Alyssa, and the Tom Sumner Program. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Ladies and gentlemen, in Philip Rapp's creation, the Bickersons. It's Christmas Eve, and the Bickersons have not retired. Mrs. Bickerson is busy wrapping presents in the bedroom while husband John, exhausted as he is from the pre-holiday activity, puts the finishing touches to the tree, which stands proudly in the kitchen, the only other room in the Bickerson's small apartment. Listen. John? John? Will you bring the scissors, please? John? What is he doing in there? Oh, no. How can a man fall asleep on a ladder? Oh, I haven't got the heart to wake him. Oh, I'd better get him off of there. John? John! Oh, ow. What's, the, what's the matter, Blanche? What happened, huh? Oh, you poor dear. Did you hurt yourself? No, uh, no, I'm all right. How did I fall off that ladder? I must have fainted. Yes, dear, you were fainting like a log when I came in. Why, John? What? You never even touched your dinner. Not a morsel of it. I don't like the looks of it, Blanche. Oh, stop that talk. It's perfectly good food. You let it sit there on the kitchen table for hours getting cold. You want me to warm it up for you? No, just tell me what's on that big plate. Are you trying to be funny, John? I'm not trying to be funny, Blanche. What is it? You know very well I can only cook two things. Liver and rice pudding. Well, which one is that? How can you be so nasty on Christmas Eve, John? Blanche, I just asked you a civil question, that's all. I didn't think it was liver because your liver always looks like rubber heels. That stuff looks more like scrambled eggs, so I thought it might be rice pudding. Well, why don't you taste it and find out? I'm not hungry. That's why you're always tired, John. You don't eat enough. I eat plenty. Well, what did you have for lunch today? Well, you ought to know. You packed it for me. And listen, Blanche... I'm getting sick of carrying my lunch to the office in paper sacks. Why can't I go to a restaurant like the other fellas? John, what are you talking about? I haven't fixed your lunch for two years. Oh, Blanche, every morning of my life I find my lunch wrapped in brown paper on the side of the sink. Lunch? That's the kitchen scraps. How do you like that? No wonder I never have an appetite. Why do you do that to me, Blanche? Go on. Eat some dinner and finish trimming the tree. I don't want any dinner. I want to go to sleep. Aren't you going to finish the tree? I can do it in the morning. But, John, tomorrow morning is Christmas Day. I expect a lot of people to drop in. The butcher's coming, and the milkman is coming, and the... Listen, Blanche, I can't afford to give those guys presents. Why did you invite them over? I didn't invite them. They're coming here to collect their bills. Bills? What bills? I gave you money for the bills. Well, I had to buy presents, didn't I? My sister Clara sent me a package and I had to get her something in return. No, you didn't. Nobody asked her to send you anything. Well, she did just the same. So, I bought her a bottle of perfume. How much was that? 
$24. Why, nobody can carry that much perfume. If it was only an ounce, silly. It's the latest perfume. Very daring. It's called Perhaps. Perhaps for $24 you should get Positively. Don't be so crabby, John. We're not going to fight on Christmas Eve, no matter what happens. Remember, you promised. Okay. I'm not even going to get mad because you didn't send me a Christmas card. I did send you a Christmas card. It isn't necessary to make excuses or alibis, John. I'm going to forget it entirely. I don't have to make excuses. I did send you a Christmas card. I mailed it five days ago. John, you, you promised you wouldn't shout. Well, then, why are you goading me like this? You know I wouldn't say I sent you a Christmas card unless I had. I never received it. Well, then it got lost in the mail. Kevin. All the other cards came in. That doesn't mean anything. One card can get lost, can't it? If you sent it. I did send it. I swear I sent it. Had a wonderful poem on it, a beautiful picture. It was trimmed with lace. Cost me a buck. All right, John. Well, you don't believe me? Let's not discuss it anymore. Okay. But I hope you don't forget to send one next year. (sighs) What's the use? All right, so I didn't send you a card. That's all. Why didn't you just admit it before? There was nothing to admit. I just said I didn't send it to end the argument, but I really sent it. What did it say on it? Um, it said, uh, Merry Christmas to my love. That could be anybody. Let me finish. It said, Merry Christmas to my love, my wife, my life, my turtle dove. Life with you is great, it seems. I love you more than pork and beans. You're only adding insult to injury, John. Well, how do I know what it said? I can't remember what... What's that laying on top of the newspaper? There it is. There's my card. Oh, so it is. See, you didn't have to get so excited after all. Oh, thank you, darling. It's a lovely card. Wear it in good health. Well, let's open the presents and then go to sleep. Well, how could you, John? You know we never open presents until Christmas morning. Besides, you haven't finished trimming the tree. All it needs is a string of lights. One of the bulbs is blown. That kills the whole string. Well, can't you buy a bulb? The stores aren't open now. What time is it? Five past twelve. Well, that's good. It's Christmas Day. Let's open presents. You didn't even hang up your stocking. I haven't got one that would hold anything. They look like lace curtains. Come on, let's open the presents, Blanche. Come on, huh? Oh, all right. Say we haven't got very many this year, have we? Oh, who's this from? That's from Leo Goosby. It's amazing how you went to the one shaped like a bottle. Oh? Oh, is that what it is? I hope it's good stuff. Ah, mm, that's not bad at all. John, that's shampoo. Shampoo? Why, that chiseler, two-bit Leo? What do I want with a bottle of shampoo? And to think, I threw out 39 cents on a tie for him. What have you got there? It's another present for you. Oh, it's from your boss. No kidding. Gee, that's a big one. Oh, what is it, Blanche? A five-gallon can of lighter fluid. Well, that's fine. That's just what I need. I don't even own a lighter. Well, don't feel too bad, John. Maybe you can exchange it for something else. Last year, he sent me a bowling ball case. He must get these things in a rummage sale. I never heard of such presents. Here's one for me, from Louise Shaw. Shoo, but that's a dilly. Oh, Louise always sends something nice. Not expensive, but it usually comes in handy. Well, look at that. What is it? It's a polo score pad. Isn't that nice? That'll sure come in handy. 
Honest, Blanche, you've got the weirdest collection of friends. Is there anything else? Just our presents to each other. Why don't you look at what I got you first, and then you can show me what you got me. Now, close your eyes. I'll unveil it. All right. I hope you didn't spend too much, dear. I don't really want anything. Open your eyes. Blanche. Oh, Blanche, darling. That way, that's beautiful. That's a dream. A portable bar with a brass rail. Don't you think a kiss is in order, John? Oh, a million kisses. Well, stop <laughs> kissing the bar. I-, I meant a kiss for me. Oh, I'm sorry, darling. It's it's just too good to be true. Oh, you're wonderful. Uh, Blanche, that must have cost a fortune. Now, John, don't get angry, but I sold my fur coat. You you sold your fur coat? I wanted you to have the bar, and I didn't have the money. You sold your coat, that beautiful fur coat that you bought yourself for my birthday? That gorgeous bald mink? I got $75 for it. The bar cost 85 Oh, Blanche, you sh- never should have sold that bald mink. It doesn't matter. I have a cloth coat, and I never get cold. Yeah, but you don't understand. Um, open the present I got for you. I can't wait, John. Oh, a muff. A fur muff. Genuine plucked skunk. I had it made special to match that coat. It can hold two full quarts, and you sold the coat. Oh, well, what's the difference, darling? Someday you'll make a lot of money, and then you'll be able to get a coat that'll match the muff. (laughs) I'm very happy, John. I know, but... uh, And you still have the gorgeous bar. That's just it. What's the matter? I sold all my bourbon to pay for the muff. That's great, isn't it? What a break for both of us. I think it's wonderful, John. What do you mean, Blanche? I've never been so happy in my life. We've both made a sacrifice, and that's worth more than all the gold and precious jewels in the world. Just to know that you gave up a prized possession is proof enough that you love me. I've always loved you, Blanche. I may holler and rant and act like a first-class crumb sometimes, but you never doubted that I loved you, did you? No, John. It's been seven years, honey, most of it uphill. I haven't showered you with diamonds or bought any yachts, but I try not to deny you anything. I suppose you have your little faults, what woman hasn't, or what man either, for that matter. We're both pretty sensitive people. Maybe that's why we beef so much. Still, I don't think we're any worse than any other married couple. At least we have a safety valve, and we can let off steam. Some of the others just carry it inside until the break comes. No, Blanche, I like it this way, and I love you more than anything on earth. John. Hey, hey, cut that out. I'll prove how much I love you. Where is that liver or rice pudding or whatever it is you made? (laughs) It's liver. I'll eat every bit of it if it kills me. Let's go. Merry Christmas, darling. Merry Christmas. Good night, John. Alexander Zanjic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.